Well, another quiz for you as well. It's a morning of quizzes after the children's talk. Uh, I want to begin by reading again a list of names. They're not anagrams, they're real names. And as I do so, I want, as you see the names and hear the names, uh, to ask yourself if you recognize any of them and what is it that connects them all together. All right, everybody with me? Okay, here we go. Wilhelmina Hunter, Nora and Bill Thompson, Nancy Cameron Day, Nora Elliott, William George Clark, Elizabeth Chapman, Ludwig van Beethoven, Elizabeth Chapman, Ivy Bins. Now, I suppose most of you have heard of Ludwig van Beethoven. You may not have heard of many of the other names on that list. But if you are a resident in Edinburgh and have grown up here or lived here for any number of years, then I would suggest to you that you've probably seen these names at some time or other. They are all the names of people in whose memory a bench has been dedicated in Princess Street Gardens. I have to be honest and say that although I walked past them many times, I didn't take notice of the names until I specifically set out to do so this week. I even discovered to my surprise, and some of you will know this, there is even a bench dedicated to the Baptist Union of Scotland on its centenary in 1969 with a very appropriate Bible verse. Jesus said, come to me and rest. We are known by our names. We are remembered by our names. Yet while some names are famous, and yes, there is a bench dedicated to Ludwig van Beethoven, if you look carefully in the gardens, most of our names are soon forgotten. And that's why people mark out the memory of a loved one by putting a name on a gravestone or on a bench, sometimes with a brief epitaph which tells you something about that person and what he or her meant to those who love them. Not just their life, Wilhelmina Hunter, not just a mother, but a friend. Now, if you've been following our morning series in the book of Nehemiah, which we've called Restoring the Ruins, You'll know that the book on which it's based, in this book, the Bible, the Old Testament, has lists and lists, or actually five full lists of names. Several hundred names are listed there. And apart from the central character, who gives the book its name, Nehemiah, most of the others are to us strange-sounding Hebrew names of obscure people who lived 2,500 years ago. And today, as we come to the next chapter of the story in the book, we find another list of names of actually 35 men with their family history names. And I, I did a rough count, 3,044 other people whose names are not even mentioned. But they all have one thing in common. They are all residents in Jerusalem. They are all citizens of what are described as the holy city. And that's the theme I want to focus on 
uh, this morning as we continue our series, I want us to look at what is it that makes Jerusalem the holy city? So let's read from the section that's set before us for today. It's quite a long section. Nehemiah 11, verse 1, right through to chapter 12, verse 26. It's page 496, and it will help to open the Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the pews. Just uh, reach over and get one or ask someone to pass one to you. I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm going to read the first 24 verses chapter 11 and then we'll refer to the rest of it uh, during the course of the message and I'll do my best with the names now the leaders of the people settle in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem the holy city while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem these are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each in his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, a descendant of Perez and Marcia, son of Barak, the son of Col Jose, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joirib, the son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah. The descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 able men. From the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, son of Meshullam, the son of Joab, the son of Padiah, the son of Peliah, the son of Marcia, the son of Ith. Ithiel, the son of Jeshiah, and his followers, Gabai and Salai, 928 men. Joel, son of Zikri, was their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hasananua, was of the second district of the city. From the priests, Jediah, the son of Joirib, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshullam, the son of Zadok, the son of Mariah, the son of Ahitub, supervisor in the house of God, and their associates who carried on work for the temple, 822 men. Adiah, son of Jero <coughs> Jeroham, the son of Pelaliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Melchijah, and his associates, who were heads of families, 242 men. Amashiah, the son of Azarel, the son of Arzai, the son of Mechilamoth, the son of Imma, and his associates, who were able men, 128 men. Their chief officer was Zabdiel, son of Hakadolim. From the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azricam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Buni, Shabbatai, and Jozebad, two of the heads of the Levites, who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. Mataniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Bakbukia, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shamoah, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun, the Levites in the holy city, total 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their associates who kept watch at the gates, 172 men. The rest of the Israelites with the priests and Levites were in all the towns of Judah, each on his ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Zihar and Gishpah were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Barney, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, 
Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. The singers were under the king's orders which regulated their daily activity. Pethahiah, son of Meshezabel, one of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people. Well, we got through that. And you may say, what's the point of all those names? And I might say the same thing about you. What's the point in your name? Does it really matter? Yes, it does. And these names are recorded in God's word. And we're going to see much bigger implications of that. So, as we focus on these verses and the remaining section, I want to suggest, uh, try and group together our thinking uh, under three headings, all right? Three essentials for a holy city. What makes Jerusalem a holy city? All right? The first is so obvious, you can easily miss it. But if you miss it, you miss the whole point. What I would call, I'm trying to group these together, and I'm working hard on trying to make memorable titles, but just excuse the titles and stick with the point. Uh, what I call the necessity of people. Around a century before, the Jewish people had returned from exile in Babylon and had settled in what had once been the tribal lands of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, the names of the places where they now lived are listed in the rest of chapter 11. I haven't read that. You can read it yourself. But although the temple, a smaller version than the original, had been rebuilt, few of the people had chosen to live within the city itself, mainly because a city without walls was not a safe place to live. So the city remained largely unoccupied, with many parts still in ruins. This was the situation described in Nehemiah 7, verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Now we come to chapter 11, the walls have been rebuilt. And it is vitally important that the city is repopulated with a new influx of Israelites. This was not just for reasons of security and defense, important though that was. No, Jerusalem, we read twice in these verses, was the holy city set apart for the worship of God. It was to be a distinctive witness on Mount Zion to the watching world. So the surrounding nations would see what the true God was really like. But in order to fulfill this purpose, the city needed people. A holy city needed a holy people. Otherwise, it would just remain a monument. A magnificent monument, maybe, with temples and walls. Like so many ancient sites which people can visit in the world today. Uh, we, Nietzsche and I, have been to Egypt on a couple, several occasions and we've visited quite a few of the temples in Egypt. And they're very impressive. But they're not holy. They're empty. Empty of people. The so-called gods that were worshipped there are no longer worshipped. Now, Nehemiah and his fellow leaders knew that this holy city needed holy people. And they'd led by example by settling themselves in the city. But more people were needed to join them to make Jerusalem, as we'll see, a fully functioning holy city. So in order to meet this need, a decision was taken. It's a very interesting decision. People of Israel tithed, gave a tenth of all their produce to God. They decided to tithe on the population and choose by lot one in every ten families to come and live within the city walls. You, you imagine that if we were doing a church plant in Charlotte Chapel. 
and you're a member of Charlotte Chapel. And we say, we're going to do a new church plant, like we did at Nidri. Could have got more people if we'd done this, actually. I should have read it at that time. But anyway, uh, you know, we put all the members' names in the hat, we shake them up, and then we say, Lord, guide us which families you want to move, and your name comes out, and you're living out in some nice suburb somewhere, and we say, right, you can move and move to Nidri. And it's quite a challenge, isn't it? Well, Jerusalem wasn't Nidri, but even so. So we see those who were chosen to live within the city, to move into the city. Verse 1 then, now the leaders of the people settle in Jerusalem, the leaders are there. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns scattered around in the tribal lands. And along with those were others who volunteered to live in the city. As we read in verse 2, the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, it's not absolutely clear whether these are a separate group of people or these volunteers were the same people who were chosen by Lot who gladly accepted and volunteered when they were chosen. It seems most likely that in addition to those who were chosen by Lot, the ten, there were others who gladly volunteered to move into the city. Whatever the case, the point is this. Such a move was a costly move for those involved. It meant uprooting yourselves and your family from your farms. Many of these people had lived their families there for a hundred years since they'd returned from exile. They'd settled in. And they were being asked to move to a city life that was very different from a rural, suburban life. And they were being asked to move to a city that was largely undeveloped, that was in many parts in ruins. It was for all concerned a costly move which involved sacrifice. One writer, John Kitchen, in his book on Nehemiah we've referred to before, Revival in the Rubble, commenting on verse 1 and 2, says, Some as leaders sacrificed out of duty and responsibility. Others sacrificed out of a right understanding of authority and submission. Still others did so out of raw enthusiasm and desire. Now, whatever our motives, let me ask you a question. As I have asked myself as I've studied this, what is it costing you and me to be God's people. You see, it's easy to talk about sacrifice in general terms, isn't it? It's easy to sing, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. But sacrifice always has personal and practical implications. Let's just take the issue at stake here. How does your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and his people affect the choice of where you live. Very interesting, isn't it, when we choose homes? We want a nice home. Nothing wrong with that. We want to be in a nice area. Nothing wrong with that. We want to be in a good catchment area for our children, education. Nothing wrong with that. But how often people make all those decisions and choose the ideal home and then they scratch their heads and say, hmm, I wonder which church we should go to now. How does that affect your commitment to God's people? And my experience as a pastor of many years is that I've seen people's Christian lives shipwrecked because they've moved out of the area, they found a nice house in the countryside, can understand the choice, but it's lessened their commitment to Christ and to his people. And often 
you can only function as a Christian within a local church. That's where God places you. And that choice will affect your future spiritual health and that of your family. And what about the need, in more general terms, for Christians to be a presence in our cities? The American pastor, now with the Lord James Montgomery Boyce, in his book on Nehemiah, pleads for what he calls urban renewal. And he comments, our situation is very different from the one that confronted Nehemiah. We have cities that are overflowing. He had a city that was nearly empty. Nevertheless, there are surprising similarities. Nehemiah wanted to populate Jerusalem. We need to populate our largely secular cities with Christians in order to reach this vast urban majority for Christ. And more specifically, what about the needy areas of our city? I still recall when we interviewed Mess McConnell to be pastor of Nidri. And some of you know the story. Uh, one of the questions we asked him was, if you get this job as pastor of Nidri, where would you, where would you want to live? And uh, we didn't know him very well at that point, but we soon realized when he gave us the answer. He said, that's a no-brain question. Um, interesting comment. He said, I've been on the, and I almost recall the words, we all looked rather shocked when he said it. I've been on the receiving end where you drive into church in your nice cars for a couple of hours on Sunday and then go home to your nice houses and leave us here. I'll live in Nidri. And so he has. And so have others in Nidri, much to my admiration. It's a tough call of move to live within that community and that area. Whether we feel called or able to follow their example, and it is a tough call. We should be like the people in Nehemiah who commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem needed people. Our cities need people. Our needy areas need people. But in order for Jerusalem to be a holy city, uh, these people needed to be more than just a presence. They needed to be active citizens. So here's the second essential for a holy city, what I would call the variety of service. Referring to another book here, we often refer to books. I hope some of you are buying some of these books and reading them and being challenged by them. The Bible Speaks Today comes from Nehemiah, Raymond Brown, Baptist Christ. When we examine these two lists of Jerusalem and Judah's residents, chapter 11, verses 4 to 36, and of Israel's priests and Levites, that's the next chapter we haven't read, uh, chapter 12, 1 to 26, we find ourselves confronted with a wide range of gifts and abilities which these people brought to God's work. Uh, look very quickly as we look through, and you maybe picked it out among all the names, some of the gifts and service. Let's start with the most obvious, leaders. Verse 3 of chapter 11. These are the provincial leaders who settle in Jerusalem. Here are men who already got experience of leadership who now transfer those skills to the city. Along with them were administrators. Joel, son of Zikri, was their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hassan. Hassanua was over the second district of the city. That's verse 9. Uh, what, what did an administrator do? The word includes people who had the practical administration of the city. They were to keep the streets clean and the markets in order. They were to ensure proper sanitary arrangements. Did you know the law of God in Deuteronomy describes such things? Very practical, down to earth. They were to make sure good building regulations were in place. And that meant they needed practical skills, so they needed maintenance men, such as those mentioned who looked after the exterior of the temple. Shabbatai and Jozebad, two of the heads of the Levites, had charge of the outside work of the house of God. 
And the city itself needed security guards to let friends in and to keep enemies out. The gatekeepers are described in verse 19, who kept watch at the gates. And then there were all those involved in the life and worship of the temple, beginning with the priests. And there's a list there of the priests, Jediah, verse 10, the son of Joreb, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, the son of Zadok, the son of Mariah, the son of Ahidub, supervisor in the house of God. Uh, most scholars think the word supervisor in the house of God means the high priest. And if you read on in chapter 12, you'll see a list right down to about the year, obviously added by a later editor, right down to about 400 BC of the succeeding high priests who were the leaders of the people when they had no kings. Uh, added to those were the people who were skilled musical directors. Verse 17, Mataniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. They were assisted in the ministry of music by singers. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. The singers were under the king's orders which regulated their daily activity, verses 22 and 23. And, and even the king of Persia had a say in this. He wanted to make sure it was done properly and probably provided funding for it. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Kadmiel and their associates who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving one section responding to another, as prescribed by David, the man of God. Uh, one writer, Derek Kidner, comments, worship was too important to be left unplanned. Kind of reflected on that. Worship was too important to be left unplanned. Just thought it through. And all of these people had associates, did you see? Verse 17, alongside Matanai, the musical director was... Uh, Bakbukiah, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shamoah, the son of Galal, the son of Juduthun. You may have heard the story of Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. He was once asked in an interview, which is the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? And he said, second violin. So the ditty goes, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Maybe you're a second in command. You're not the guy up front, behind the scenes, still doing. And added to this were all the other people, many, many others, nameless. Uh, Raymond Brown again comments. These lists testify to the spiritual commitment of many hundreds of Jerusalem citizens. Besides the leaders and prominent people, there were innumerable others whose different qualities, skills, abilities, and expertise had been willingly and gratefully offered to God. And many of these people who took up residence, they were quality people. Men of proven strengths, brave men, verse 6. Brave warriors, a different word in verse 16, which can be translated men of substance, outstanding men. When we plant churches, when we send people to mission, we send the best people, not the people who don't get on with anybody else or we think, oh, I can't think what to do with them, we'll send them off to something like that. No, you need quality people to plant churches, to be involved in mission. Now, the application to us is obvious. Not as citizens of a city, but as members of a local church. Some located like we are in the city, others in rural areas. Local churches are congregations of God's people coming together with a variety of gifts and abilities used for the glory of God. And God's word said, if you're a Christian, you can only function and use your gifts within a local church. 
Use your gifts, says Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. Romans 12, 6 to 8. So, again, our course for application. Do you, A, know what your gifts are? And B, are you using them to the full in a local church, either this church or your own church, if you belong somewhere else we're visiting today? In a church like Charlotte Chapel, there are literally, and I don't exaggerate, several hundred people who are involved in all sorts of tasks behind the scenes. You see us guys in the pulpit. We wouldn't be in the pulpit, we're enough for the other guys. It's not important whether you're in the pulpit or not. It's important that you use your gifts to the full. And often these people are only missed uh, when they fail to carry out their work for some reason. I grew up in a small little Baptist church in my home county in Derbyshire, uh, a little little Baptist hall. And one morning, I remember, I can still vaguely remember when I was growing up, we came into church and the church was absolutely freezing. And we had one of those big, what do you call them, boilers or generators? furnaces at the back of the church it was not working and everybody looked and said Mr. Cox must be ill because Mr. Cox's job was to light the fire I doubt whether anybody said to him thanks so much, it's nice to have that warm fire but boy when it was missing everybody noticed so are you using your gifts if you don't know what they are we have a special ministry in Charlotte Chapel that Lorna van der Merwe has been developing called Connect Ministry and it, it helps you to find out your gifts. It brings people and puts them in the right place. I asked Lorna, emailed her this week and said, what's the latest list look like? And you wouldn't believe the vacancies. You see, some people come to a church like Charlotte Chapel think, oh, it's a really big church, so I won't have to do anything. I can just relax. Listen, there are loads of vacancies, ranging from leaders to fellowship groups and Christianity Explored course, camera and sound operators in media, there are 11 vacancies in youth council for uniformed organizations. Saturday Focus, CID. Christian Living needs flower distributors. That means taking the flowers to people who are shut in. Charlotte Sports needs someone to update their website, administer their Facebook page. They even need a golf day administrator. Now, maybe God has given you the gift of golf day administration or administration which can be applied to golf days. Looking at Derek up here, he probably knows about this. Uh, so, if you belong to this fellowship, and you say, well, I ask you, what are you doing? I, I don't need to know. The Lord needs to know, but we need to plug them in. So, the lists are in the lounge after the service to join us for coffee. The Lord will be down there. Go and have a look and say, hey, I could do that. Maybe I could, I, I could help with the cubs or the rainbows or whatever it might be. Big commitment. You could use your gift. You could try it out there and find out if this is your calling. So, let's move on. These are the two essentials for a holy city, a local church, the necessity of people, the variety of ministry. But in some senses, these could be a feature of any organization, couldn't they? You know, any club. There is a third essential which uniquely applies to a holy city and a local church. The priority, thirdly, the priority of worship. The priority of worship. Of all the cities on earth, Jerusalem was unique different 
tetapa, or to use the Bible word, holy. Which is why twice in this chapter, and in many other places in the Bible, it's referred to as Jerusalem, the holy city. Now the psalmist celebrates this. Psalm 48, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in a citadel. He's citadels. He has shown himself to be a fortress. Jerusalem is the holy city because it's the place situated on Mount Zion where God has chosen to dwell. Psalm 132. The Lord says, I have chosen, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has designed it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here will I sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I'll clothe the priest with salvation. Her saints will ever sing for joy. So Jerusalem is a holy city. It's the place where God has chosen to dwell. And therefore, it's the place under the old covenant where God's people must worship him. And that worship, as we've seen, is centered on the temple. That's why it needs people in Jerusalem to function as the worshipping holy people of God. It's centered on the temple where sacrifice, praise and prayer are brought by the priests, people to God. But it's not just the temple that is holy, it is the whole city that is holy. And so the activity of the whole city, priests and people, must be devoted to the worship of God. All their gifts to used to glorify God to declare his holiness. Raymond Brown puts it well, the builder's hammer was no less expressive of sincere devotion than the chorister's voice. So there must be no credibility between what happens in the temple and what happens in the city. The priests and the people are to live holy lives in obedience to God's law, reflecting God's character to the holy nations. This is what defines Jerusalem, what sets it apart. And this is what reduced Jerusalem to rubble in its temple because the people failed to recognize that and to live as the holy people of God. And God decided, rather than be a bad witness, he would remove the lampstand, remove the witness for a time. And now the people are back in Jerusalem. And God says, I need you people to live for me as, your, as my holy people. Now let's come again to the application for us. The focus of worship, the locus, if you like, the particular point, is no longer on the city of Jerusalem. Very interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ, you may remember the story in John's Gospel when he met that woman at the well and began to talk to her about her need for living water. Uh, and the woman, as many people often do, tried to divert the attention away uh, to religion. And she said, uh, we worship God on this mountain. The Samaritan mountain was called Mount Gerizim, then built their own temple there. You worship on that mountain, Mount Zion, which is correct. Listen to what Jesus said, new directions for worship. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. So there are no longer any holy cities on earth or holy temples, just holy people coming together to worship God in spirit and truth whenever they meet, even two or three in the name of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, a city full of temples, to all sorts of gods. Ephesus was just a place where you could walk down the street and you'd see temples everywhere. 
And if you went to Ephesus and said, I'm a Christian, where's the Christian temple? You wouldn't find a building. You'd find some people worshipping in a home. A holy temple in the Lord. This is what he writes. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. Look at the language of building. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Writing to Gentile Christians. Not a Jewish background. The Apostle Peter transfers old covenant terms and descriptions to new covenant Christians and describes new covenant worship. You are a chosen people. Look at the language, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. What purpose? Same as the old covenant. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And significantly, immediately after saying that, he goes on to describe how this worship is lived out in new covenant holy living. Dear friends. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day you visit them. So for us, if we are Christians, our priorities, as it always has been, the priority of worship is not limited to a city or a temple or any physical building. It's seen throughout the world whenever Christians meet together in the name of Jesus. These are the three essentials, at least three, for a holy city, for a local church. Let me say something in conclusion. I don't know if anybody's going to donate a park bench in your memory uh, when you've gone. Uh, today, I, I had my picture taken to be put in the vestry, hence the suit and the effort. There is nothing wrong with such things, but they are not what ultimately matters. Remember that occasion in the Gospels when Jesus sent out those 72 disciples on their first missionary journey, and they came back and they said, Lord, we've had a fantastic time. They preached the word. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. And even the spirits submit to us. And in reply, Jesus reminded them of the real reason to rejoice. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven, as Rodney said to the children in that Lamb's Book of Life. So the most important question, therefore, is, is your name written in heaven? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can save you, who alone qualifies you to be part of his city, his people? The old hymn puts it, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin, he only, unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. If you are part of that, if you have that assurance, then earthly fame or obscurity count for nothing. Well, then nobody votes for you on Britain's Got Talent. That's not what counts. It's not what life is all about. Instead, we have a different perspective and we have a different city writing to Jewish Christians who attempted to go back to the old religion, to the temple, to Jerusalem, 
the author of the book of Hebrews reminds them of the new covenant city. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. The great climax. Let me draw to a close. But you have come, Christians, to Mount Zion. Not a place in the Middle East. To the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he immediately follows that with a solemn warning. See to it, you do not refuse him who speaks. Make sure you're part of that new community, that new kingdom, that holy city, which one day will come down out of heaven like a bride prepared. Last book of the Bible, Revelation describes it. That chapter in Hebrews concludes his idea with a call to worship. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire.